Dale, obviously there's been a recent change in the law around consent for organ donation. And I'd like you to just give us a bit of an insight into how this process came about and why the law actually needed to change. Yes, uh, deemed consent came in England on May the 20th, 2020. But when I think back, I've been involved in uh, deceased organ donation in, in roles, supporting that clinical lead for organ donation roles since actually 2008 when it already began. And I think back on the journey that many of us have been on for this. Those that don't know or those that remember, back in 2008, we had an organ donation task force and it really set out to change uh, the way we approach organization and it established the clinical leads for organization and it established the specialist nurses for organization as embedded members of the team and also organ donation committees and those three people actually really drove our organization and we had some great success and since 2008 we've actually doubled the number of deceased organ donors which is just incredible but when you analyze it a bit more the initial success up until about 2012 it actually came through increasing the number of families we approached. We referred more patients and therefore we approached more families. And just by mass action, without the consent rate really changing, we increased the number of deceased organ donors. What we found though, is we were reaching the limit of that by about 2011-12, where we were, you know, referral rates around the 90 odd percent and they were screened and anyone approaching, we approached families where there might be a genuine chance for donation but the consent rate hadn't really budged. So our second strategy, which took us from 2013 till now, was really focused in on consent. And we had a, a really big media and marketing campaign. We're putting a huge amount of effort into specialist nurse training and, and, and increasing their expertise. And we also, the collaborative approach where the doctor, bedside nurse and specialist nurse work together was really at the key of how we were trying to improve consent. And it was going up, it was improving, but not really very fast. And I think really what happened was the, the governments uh, around the UK very much looked at what was happening, looked at the success story of donation, knew that actually the public was hugely supportive of considering things like opt-out. And really they jumped the gun and jumped ahead of us as clinicians and, and began looking at that. And Wales did it first. They passed their deemed consent law in 2013 and they began in 2015 and the English government very much in sort of 2018 was very keen on bringing in deemed consent. And actually the law got passed in March 2019. To really summarises to me the English law of why there is so much public support is the fact that this law was a private member's bill for a Labour private member's bill. It was supported by the Tory government, which is very unusual as we, we know. And that just to, to have that happen and get for the Queen to sign it off um, in 2019 was really sort of astonishingly that sort of cross-party support, that wide public support. And that's where we are at the moment. And I think the law really reflects a societal belief and support in organ donation. Have there been any barriers that have been put up in that process? Because it sounds like there's been a lot of support and it's moved through quite quickly, which is quite incredible. Um, and obviously there are reasons for that. But were there any people who put a lot of barriers up to that? And what were those? 
Yeah, I, I think um, opt-out has had many ethical sort of religious sort of uh, fears with it. And some of those fears are about whether we sort of take rather than the gift-giving nature of the gift of donation. And I think that's really at the heart of it. And also the role of the family. Some people are worried that the family will be overruled and then we would actually sort of force people to donate organs. But in both Wales and England, and Scotland is bringing their own legislation, which will come into force probably the spring of next year, the role of the family has sort of really been pivotal. And we still have to talk to families. And none of that changes in any of this discussion. And that's been really reassuring to many people who had had concerns that actually what changes is just the nature, the style of the conversation. There is a, a more of a expectation, presumption, a bit more positivity towards the conversations. We have seen great success. So Wales, back in 2014-15, when they sort of began, they had the lowest consent rate, 49% in 2014-15. Their law came through in 2015. And now they actually have the highest consent across the UK of 70%. So it's been successful but that success hasn't been built on taking away family choice. And still in Wales, when families object to donation, that objection is upheld. And I, I don't think anything like that has changed. The gift-giving nature of it remains. So then you might ask, well, what's changed? If we're still going to let families overrule, why would it make a difference? How did Wales improve their success? And I don't know, it's difficult to pick out what bit it is. It's not just a piece of paper being a legislation. It's actually everything that goes with it. So the awareness campaign in the public in Wales and the awareness now in England, donations much higher in people's awareness. People have much more likely had conversations with their families. So their families really know. But from a clinical perspective, I remember when I was trained back in sort of the early sort of bit of the millennium and how to approach families uh, for organ donation, I would begin my sentence with, I'm really sorry, I have to ask you this question. Yeah, but I don't actually apologize. I'm really sorry. Would you like to speak to a religious leader? Or I'm really sorry. Would you like anyone with you to support you at this time? So I don't apologize for those aspects. Why am I apologizing for giving them an end of life choice for the family? And that apology, I managed to beat it out of myself over the years, and I don't apologize in my words. But I wonder whether there's still some apology in the hearts of intensive care doctors and nurses when they're with the specialist nurse, whether they feel like they're imposing on the family. But this law and the, all that goes with it just shows us the overwhelming public support that we can go in positively with the family, ask the question, and the decision will be the decision, but there's nothing to apologize about. And I think that sort of mixture of higher awareness in Wales with confidence, lack of apology in the team that it's the right thing to ask families has really made a difference. And we're already since May in England seeing some of that positivity come through and we are getting some deemed consent occurring already in England. It's really interesting that concept of apologising for asking that question, isn't it? And I guess it's because we see it as asking the family for consent to do something in a time that's potentially, well, is very, very difficult and challenging for the family. We, we probably feel we, we have to apologise for that. It feels like we're inflicting something on, on them uh, as opposed to actually just part and parcel of, of end-of-life choices. And there are many choices they'll have to make, and donation is just one part of that. That's mentally how I picture it, and for the ethics, 
and the good practice is this donation is just one end of life choice for the family and we should just give them all those choices. Do you think it's right that the family do have the final say? I think it's very important because it's actually, it's a protection. So some countries allegedly have hard opt-outs where the family are not allowed to overrule. And people talk about Austria and Singapore having hard opt-out. But actually, whatever you write on law, it's a piece of paper, doesn't actually ever always transpose into real clinical practice. And I know from speaking to clinicians in Singapore and Austria, it may say that on a piece of paper, that's actually not what happens. It's very hard. Also, we're intensive care doctors and nurses. Our focus is on caring for the patient, but also the family. And in the end, it's a family we speak to. We don't ever speak to the, to the patient. We only indirectly know via the family what the patient wanted. So to actually not be able to follow what the family wanted, I think it just wouldn't work in intensive care circles. Uh, you know, we, we are very family focused. They're the voice of the patient. There's actually a safety element for donation and transplantation. Unless the family is on board, how can you actually gain the information for the safe transplantation? Are they have uh, risk behavior, other aspects that may have impacted? So we need, we need that information from the family. And if they're not you know, if they're not on board supporting donation, they're not going to give it. And, and therefore, transplantation won't be safe. So for all those reasons, you know, at the bedrock of it all is, is a desire to respect the decisions of those people making life. I mean, that's fundamental for autonomy. We need to be doing that. But our protection from that and so that we can be respectful comes from the family because they're the voice. I can imagine that can be quite difficult for some people to come to terms with because I know, say for instance, I'm on the organ donation register. Um, I'm very pro-organ donation. If anything happened to me and my family member said, actually, no, we don't want them to donate their organs. And you just wonder whether that's fair or right for that patient because the shift of the focus at that point moves from the patient to the family, doesn't it? So uh, David Shaw, he's a Glaswegian philosopher, and he published in the British Medical Journal uh, the case of the angry ghost. And in the angry ghost, he imagines like a thought experiment that if a patient died who wanted to donate, but actually the patient's wife overruled that wish and the intensive care doctors very quickly went along with her. And he talks about how angry he was and asked the question in this little paper, who spoke for the patient? You know, everyone's speaking to his wife, everyone's speaking about him, but no one's actually asking of him. You know, if ghosts could talk, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to sort of uh, ignore the patient. I think that's a great thought experiment. It makes you wonder and, and think. But my own personal experience, I'm sure with yours and many other people is often the families that I'm really sorry, but you know, we can't support this. They do think deeply. We don't get very many quick decisions, even families that say no they think about it because they know the limits. I really do think the specialist nurses do a great job here of giving the family the choices. I know in my own conversations back in sort of 2005, 2008, before I became much more involved and thought about this a lot more, that if a family was giving me a little bit of, I'm not so sure, I'd be very quick to say, oh, thanks for thinking about it. I'm out of here. And actually that's not informing. And where there's a need, I think that the families actually understand Especially we do know that there's a very high chance of regret if families make a quick decision and you know, we owe it to them to give them the time because ultimately they have to live with this decision. And as organization you know, has risen in the media and people are much more aware of it, 
then the last thing you want is the family to walk out having made a quick decision of no and then six months, a year, two years later going, actually, if I'd had a bit more time, if I wasn't so rushed, if the doctors had used you know, more gentle language rather than sort of really offensive words and like harvest, which people still unfortunately come out with every now and again, it's just so wrong for the family and then it forces them down to make a quick decision. Yeah, it's a very delicate discussion, isn't it? And it's, um, it, it takes a lot of forethought before you go into those discussions to think about exactly how you're going to manage that. Mm, um, indeed. And I think it's interesting because I teach the medical students quite a lot about organ donation and they are often very surprised that their decisions about things can be overruled by a parent. I'm sure there are a lot of people who may struggle with that. We do know that actually for this overall, that actually if you are on the register, it's around 90% of families will support Families actually remember more than being on the register if they can remember a conversation the person's had with them is actually more powerful than being on the register, which can be quite a, a neutral thing. We also talk about the rule of threes, and we publish that in the Journal of Intensive Care Society for family overrule. So families are three times more likely to overrule for a DCD case, donation after circulatory death compared to donation after brainstem death, three times more likely if they're from a BAME community. And I think that's quite hard because there's an element of that it's almost for some people from our black and minority ethnic populations countercultural to register. And so they've gone that extra step and then to be overruled, I think it's very sad for them. And also it's uh, three times more likely if there's no specialist nurse in the room speaking to the family. I think that goes back to my earlier point that as a doc, you may sort of stop the conversation short and not actually explore it and give them a, a full information to make a decision. Yeah, it's very, very challenging, actually. And, and you do wonder whether sometimes those decisions that family might make at that point are based more on their own religious, ethical understanding of things rather than from the patient's perspective. But that's very, very difficult to unpick in those kind of situations and scenarios. Do you think that this law really needed to be changed? I mean, I know we talked about the effect of increasing in consent rates just with approaching families more and talking to them more. Do you think it's more about opening up the discussion about organ donation rather than having to have a law about it? It's a very complicated topic, and I think we'll be unpicking which bit caused which. Like we look at Wales and its success, was it the law or was it what came with the law? I was in the past, I was quite agnostic about whether we needed a law. I wasn't quite sure what it would achieve. But actually, the more I've thought about it, I've realised that the law is just a mechanism to actually start a lot of other discussions. So our politicians want to support. They think this is positive. What do politicians do? They write laws. But with that law also came money. We've had some of the highest number of media sort of campaigns we've ever been able to afford because of the law. We've reached a plateau with where we were and our specialist nurses were working extremely hard with what we have and weren't getting any new funding. The law, we've able to expand the number of specialist nurses we've got. Many of us in intensive care have been very frustrated that, you know, the, the family say, yes, we've set up the donation and not all the organs have been retrieved and transplanted. And there's a real desire to look at that other side of the coin. But to be fair, transplant has not been funded like the way that donation has. There's been no revolution in clods and snods. You know, they've been relatively just had to get on with it as we've increased the number of donors. There's a big need now to actually look at transplantation and look at that focus and again, that takes money. I think also, we, you know, our engagement has never been higher. So at the intensive care state-of-the-art meeting, we actually had one of the first donor families from Wales who actually had deemed consent 
uh, speak at that meeting, Joanna Duckworth, talking about her husband. And it was incredible. There was a standing ovation for her. It was, it was an opening plenary. We never would have got that opportunity had there not been a law change. Likewise, all the sort of interaction we've had with faith communities. Now, previously, we've tried to engage with faith communities and you know, some have engaged and, and some haven't because it's not been a key priority. But like it or not, the law change, it's forced everyone to think about it for their faith communities and actually to work with NHS Blood and Transplant to try to find a way through it. And we've tried to give the reassurance that things are important. We've also, because of that engagement, even before the law became into force and actually changed, we've altered the organ donor register now so you can put a faith declaration into it which reads sort of like, I would like NHS staff to speak to my family and anyone else appropriate about how organisation can go ahead in line with my faith or beliefs. Although we'd always explored faith as appropriate, but this puts it on a sort of a real strong footing. If you tick that box, the specialist nurses will definitely be talking to your family about faith, will be asking the question about, would you like one of your faith religious leaders to come to talk about this and how can we work with them? And that never would have happened had the law not been there, had we not had that engagement uh, it sort of drove a lot of initiatives forward. So from my agnosticism, I was actually talking, uh, those that know me and probably can hear, I'm Australian, and so I have a lot of contacts back home in, in Australia. And talking to them, they're, they're wondering whether it's going to come, this change in the law. And I've told them and I've told people in Canada, it's inevitable. I see it as inevitable. As donation has increased and people be more aware of it, this is how governments, they try to help and they do help by doing this. And in fact, Nova Scotia in Canada has just brought in deemed consent law very, very close on paper to Wales and England and how it's been brought in. So that's my message to many countries is I suspect it's inevitable. And you really then as sort of donation leaders and intensive care is we make sure that it works well and it respects families. And that's been the priority the last few years to ensure we can implement it safely. We can gain the benefits from it and the role of the family is protected. That sounds like a, an amazing process, really. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, as you mentioned about the impact of faith and about giving people the option for discussion with a leader in their faith, I wonder if you could just talk about how that engagement with different faiths has been through this process and how that's been taken on and accepted or, or what discussions you've had around that. So when we think about faith and beliefs, even if you were to say the word Christian, and of course then that means many different things. There are many different types of Christian. And even within a certain like Anglican, there can be very different belief structures. And the same is, is very much true in sort of the Muslim, Jewish and other communities, whereby the local leader can be as impactful as any national guidance. So we certainly do have national support from many religious senior leaders for donation and no outright objection to the concept of donation. But it's the subtleties that make a difference, and it's getting it down to a local leader. So the ways we've sort of tackled that is, one, on a sort of much more higher national level with engagement with leaders and scholars. And there was a new fatwa for the Muslim community. In the Jewish community, we've been engaging very much in senior Jewish rabbis to actually really sort of try to give that a greater awareness as well as a listening. I think sometimes the faith communities, we tend to, as medical people, come and talk at them. And I think it's been very important in this whole process that we've been listening. And that's why we changed the organ donor register. And that's why we try to give them the reassurance. 
There's also a, a huge amount that people don't actually fully understand what happens. Like intensive care, we understand donation, we see it. But sometimes people think that organs are sort of stored and we, you know, they, there's a big factory and then, you know, we take the organs and then they, they wait. And they don't realize that actually we have to match them before we even begin the process. Likewise, they think that actually from the emergency department, we just take out an organ and put it into someone. Whereas we know well, the whole process takes 24 hours minimum to make it all work. And that gives plenty of time for family conversation because that's not how donation works. And so some of the myth busting can be really powerful. And I think actually our interaction with many faith leaders means that they are much, much more aware of actually how it all works and the checks and balances along the way. But overall, I would say our engagement's been very positive. We've just enormous uh, support. And that doesn't mean that everyone has to say yes to donation. But what we want very much is that people, if they do say no, and that it's a legitimate choice, but they've made it with the information. They're not doing it on some sort of ancient myth that has nothing to do with actually what we're talking about. So it's all right to say no, but we'd just like to make sure that actually it's not because you were afraid, because there's nothing to be afraid of. You say no because you don't agree with it, and that's absolutely fine, and you don't want it for you. That's absolutely fine, but not by fear, not because you think of something that's going to happen, which is just not true. And we all know that. Certainly intensive care doctors have been a powerful force for good in their own local communities. Doctors are generally respected in their local communities and there have been potential links into local communities or faith leaders themselves. They've been really powerful to get that message out and to actually make sure that there's a level of understanding and myths are busted. It strikes me that the key thing is the conversation and, and that's both with the wider community but also at the time with the family. And I also wonder whether the fact that opt-out encourages family members to have those discussions with each other when they may not have had those before, which obviously leads to a family that may be more informed at the time of death to be able to have those um, sort of key conversations with the clinicians. Absolutely. And I'm sure you agree with me when I say that some of the worst conversations I've been part of is when the family just don't know what they would have wanted and they're left, I don't know what the right thing to do is. And actually, by having had a conversation, whether it's a yes or a no, it makes it easy. And it's an easy decision. And then they can move on to the next decision. And I think that it's so essential. We should all have talked to our families. You know, there's many areas within intensive care, other than organ donation, where actually getting the conversation going about things families don't like to talk about is probably quite an important step to take and a, and a good driver. I agree. And we know advanced care planning is part and parcel. And we're all shocked when we have patients turn up in the emergency department or ward who you go, but this was inevitable. This deterioration was inevitable. It was maybe not today or tomorrow, but it was, you know, within months, this was going to happen. And yet no one has raised this with the patient or the family. And now we here as the intensive care doctor at 2am trying to make a decision. And, and it's just, it's a, there's a whole wealth of work that needs to happen in yeah. advanced care planning and end of life considerations so that it's not chaos that's just not fair on anyone not fair on the patient not fair on the family and not fair on us in intensive care and i guess in the end it's doing right by the patient isn't it we never know that unless we've had that conversation or that understanding about what they wanted dale i'm going to take you on a slightly different tack now and i just want you to think about a consultant on icu just to take us through the process as it is now um, with the new change in the law, how has it changed for what we should do on ICU? How do we approach that conversation? Is there anything that we should change in the way that we're doing things? In many ways, from an intensive care point of view, it should start the same. And I think we just need to actually refer everyone 
because referral rules can change and you just refer. And that's sort of from a human factors point of view, it takes it out of a decision if you routinely refer everyone. And that's what I do. But then our breaking bad news, I bring the specialist nurse in for that breaking bad news conversation because I think they bring a wealth of expertise and they really sort of, I think, improve the family experience and the support they can give and actually take a load off me because I've got other responsibilities and I can let them support the family after I leave. The way the law works is you have to find out whether someone's expressed a decision in life, and that's what has precedence. And then you can express a decision either verbally or written. So written's easy on the organ donor register. But people may not appreciate that a verbal in law, so if you tell your family, I would want to donate or I do not want to donate, is in law the same as a written on the organ donor register. So that requires a bit of expertise from the specialist nurses to actually unpick a verbal. It's also the last known decision. If you change your mind at different stages, actually, we, by law, we follow the last known decision. But then assuming they haven't ever expressed that, it's only then in England that the deemed consent could apply. And there's excluded groups, so it doesn't apply to children uh, under the age of 18. You've had to have the mental capacity to have actually understand the law change, and you have to have been ordinarily resident in England for 12 months. So it wouldn't apply for tourists or students who've just arrived. And there's a few other exclusions, only for standard donation transplantation and, and not for novel transplantation like limb or face or anything else. So the specialist nurse then has to sort of unpick that and then to see if deemed consent could apply. But what we've learned is grieving families and talking about the law never works. And actually, we very much go back to basics which is we talk about donation and, and the benefits it can bring and why you would want to and explaining it. And then the language we use is very much of a lack of objection. If they haven't expressed a decision they didn't want to be a donor, then we can consider they had a lack of objection to a proceeding. And, you know, we can explore it more with a family. So it's much more of a conversation. We're much more using language like that. And that's where the change will be. My own practice is, you know, I'm responsible very much for the breaking bad news and having the specialist nurse there and introducing and, and caring for the family that way. But then actually for that end of life discussion for planning, for religious support, for who's going to visit, more family members have to come in and organization as part of that. You know, I think that's for the specialist nurse and the bedside nurse often can lead. Often families like to reflect back on the life of the person. And as much as I want to support them with that, I've just got many other responsibilities. And that's where the specialist nurse particularly has the time for the family just to talk, for them to begin to try to understand the sort of metaphysical of why this is happening and how they're going to cope. And so I don't feel that conversation should be rushed. And because of my other responsibilities, there's a tendency for me to feel rushed and to potentially rush them. And that's where I think it's good if we can back away trusting in them it's just better experience for the family and allows them that time they need. And I'm there if needed. Thanks very much for that, Dale. That's been really interesting and a really good overview and summary of how things have changed. Obviously, this is called Max and Kira's Law. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there who may be interested to know why it's called Max and Kira's Law. And I wonder whether you can give us some insights into that. Yes, indeed. So I think it's great that the law actually has a personification. And actually, it's personified around children which for people may be a little bit ironic because it's a law that doesn't apply to children. But I just think, you know, children often uh, embody the best of us as human beings. And I think that's probably no surprise that in the end it was around that. 
So Max Johnson was a little boy in desperate need of a heart transplant, and he very much became a focus of, of a campaign to change the law. And he did get his heart transplant, and it saved his life. He's an incredible boy. He, I've, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting him. He's got so much energy and zest for life. But when you see those photos of him when he was in hospital and how close to death he was, it's a very different picture. But his donor actually was Kira Ball, who was um, age nine, and she was tragically killed in a car accident. And her parents gave their support for donation. Kira's parents have actually met uh, Max Johnson and his family, and there's some amazing pictures. And the photo I love the most is the one of Max standing with a stethoscope on his chest and around him are Kira's two sisters and a brother listening in to Kira's heart inside of Max. And it really just summarizes everything that we stand for in organ donation and transplantation, that actually that two sides of the coin, you know, the giver and the, and the receiver who, whose life is transformed and saved, it, it can't be much better than that. And I'm so pleased that we actually have the, you know, it's not just Max's law, it's not just about transplant, it's Max and Kira's law and that she's actually been remembered and all donors are remembered in this law. Mm-hmm.